This is Fred Dews, host of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast. I want to share with you another great podcast that we have here at Brookings. In Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, host David Dollar and his guests explain how our global trading system works and what impact it has on our everyday lives. Dollar and Cents is produced by the Brookings Podcast Network. New episodes come out every two weeks. Visit our website, brookings.edu slash dollarandcents, to learn more about and subscribe to the show. And you can also find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. In a recent episode, David interviewed former U.S. Trade Representative Charlene Barshevsky about the history of U.S. economic engagement with China. Barshevsky also outlined the prospect of the two countries reaching a trade deal in the near future. Here's that episode of Dollar and Cents in full. Hi, I'm David Dollar, host of the Brookings Trade podcast, Dollar and Cents. And today I'm talking with Charlene Barshevsky, former U.S. trade representative and a partner in the law firm Wilbur Hale. We're going to talk about China's membership in the World Trade Organization and U.S.-China trade relations. So welcome to the show, Charlene. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you were the United States trade representative when the U.S. and China negotiated the terms under which China could join the WTO. It's common in Washington now to argue that it was a mistake to let China into the WTO. Surely it has to be more complicated than that. So I'd like us to try to break down what are some of the positives and what are some of the negatives. Let's start with the positives since people tend to forget those these days. So what's good about China being in the WTO? Well, as you know, China's period of reform and opening on the economic side began under Deng Xiaoping in 1978. And from 1978, well through China's WTO accession, China continued on the road of economic reform and opening. And if you look today, for example, China is the world's second largest importer, right behind the United States. That would never have happened without WTO. In other words, China became a world market. China also had access to the world's markets. But bear in mind, it already had that before WTO, as most countries let China into their markets, indeed, as did the United States, applying to China the same rates of tariffs we apply to our allies for the most part. So China had access to the world's markets, but the world did not have access to China's market. And it is that economic reform and opening as accelerated and vastly deepened by WTO accession that has made China the world's second largest importer. What has happened? Well, beginning, I would say, in about 2006, 2007, under the administration of President Hu Jintao, China, rather than continue on a road toward economic convergence with a Western model, began to diverge from market economics, which is to say the Western model. And that divergence, which began under Hu Jintao, has accelerated under Xi Jinping, but it's all of the same type of activity, which is to say the increase in power and financial wealth of the state-owned enterprises, which in earlier years of China's WTO accession had been vastly cut down in size. Now we see the resurgence of state enterprises, the creation of champion companies in China, among which are Huawei, which has been in the press so much. 
the provision by China of massive subsidies to state-led or state-invested enterprises, discrimination against foreign companies, rather gingerly at first, but over time and certainly now has increased very substantially, and a host of other practices, including forced technology transfer, the theft of intellectual property, so on and so forth. And under Xi Jinping, of course, this mode of economic behavior has been given a name, and the name revolves around the notion of the China dream, the emergence, the great emergence of the Chinese state, of the Chinese people, back to the center where it historically had been in an economic sense and in part in a cultural sense, but largely economic sense. So this presents a substantial challenge to the United States. The shame of it, if we can use that word, is that the United States missed many opportunities to enforce the WTO agreement against China. So in that agreement, there are, for example, three provisions that are especially pertinent today. One is a prohibition against forced technology transfer. Remarkably, neither George W. Bush, nor Obama, nor Trump have ever sued China on that provision. This is an incredible lapse. There were provisions about the conduct of state enterprises and the fact that the government could not directly or indirectly interfere in the commercial activities of state enterprises. Again, neither the Bush, Obama, nor Trump administrations ever sued China on the basis of that provision. And last, of course, was a special anti-surge provision whose terms existed for 12 years after accession, which prevented China from disrupting the U.S. market. And if it did with respect to its imports, the president of the United States was given carte blanche authority to do whatever the president deemed necessary, including, for example, the imposition of tariffs and so on, as we see today. But if it had been done under that provision, it not only would have been internationally legal, it would have barred China from retaliating against us. This provision was used only once in 12 years by President Obama in the case of market disruption to U.S. tire manufacturers. Other than that, it was never used, and relief was repeatedly denied by George W. Bush. So these were tremendous opportunities and remain opportunities for enforcement, which the U.S. did not take. And instead, the U.S. opted for a series of dialogues with China, strategic economic dialogue, strategic and economic dialogue in innovation, the ampersand, in the Obama administration. And rather than these dialogues being a form for resolution of issues, such as the ones I just mentioned, they became talk fests and the way in which China managed the United States, not the other way around. Again, opportunity lost. So between China's shift in policy and opportunity lost with respect to enforcement on the part of the U.S. in at least these examples, I think we see the situation we see today. Right. So if I understand you, U.S. has put a lot of emphasis on bilateral discussions with China and now trying to have bilateral negotiations. Going through the WTO would have been a more multilateral approach. Could we have worked with our traditional allies, Europe and Japan? Would they have supported us in those kind of actions? 
I think they absolutely would have supported us, but I'm not sure anyone tried to persuade them to do so. Certainly not this administration. And prior administrations didn't utilize the WTO in the way in which I'm talking. The Obama administration, to its credit, did bring a number of enforcement actions against China under WTO, but in very narrow areas, not with respect to these very substantial practices like forced technology transfer or intellectual property theft. In addition, it is unfortunate that the Trump administration hasn't used the WTO in a slightly different way with respect to enforcement, and that is there are provisions in the WTO if the agreement entered into doesn't seem to be working to the advantage of the countries that let China into the WTO as they thought it would. And to the extent those countries believe China's accession has not yielded the promise or the results that one could reasonably have expected, they can bring an action in the WTO called nullification and impairment, that's a technical term, that says basically China's actions have nullified and impaired the benefits we, the U.S., and our allies thought we would get from China's WTO accession. And therefore, for example, we don't want to apply most favored nation treatment to China any longer, or any one of a number of prayers for relief one might have. This would be a very substantial action. They're not easy to prove. But if the U.S. acted with its allies, it would send a definitive kind of message to China, which is hop on board, go back to the direction you had been, which was on a convergent course, or suffer the withdrawal of trade privileges, not just from the U.S., but from your major trading partners. A common storyline in Washington is that the real structural shift, the real change has been Xi Jinping becoming the leader and particularly ending term limits so it looks like he can continue to rule for a long time. You've written that the slowdown and reform started much earlier and you just alluded to this a few moments ago. You know, it seems to me the global financial crisis was really the big structural shift, not Xi Jinping's election. This is quite important because if Xi Jinping is the problem and if he's going to be there forever, then it seems unlikely that we'll be able to negotiate changes or China will shift. So could you elaborate this a little bit on this aspect of Chinese politics and how it affects the trade situation? Well, let, let me start by just making a comment on the global financial crisis. I think it has been vastly underestimated the extent to which the financial crisis affected the perception of the United States by our trading partners and by China. What you saw in 2008-2009 was a near-synchronous decline in the economies of the United States, Japan, and Europe. You saw United States that appeared to have mismanaged its own financial house and mismanaged the global financial house, if you will, making what looked like an invulnerable United States into a vulnerable, not nearly as smart as it thought it was, United States. And what China saw in that time frame was a massive opening for it. First of all, a change in its own thinking about the notion that the international institutions were inviolate. And instead, you saw China that recommended the creation of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is sort of an analog to the World Bank. 
It suggested an analog to the IMF and so on. It also embarked on a series of other initiatives, not the least of which most recently is Belt and Road. China saw a global system that was malfunctioning, that had been led by the United States, which was the primary malefactor in its view, and saw an opportunity to step in and begin creating a more Sinocentric environment, a friendlier to China environment, which, by the way, was understandable given that China had been, I think, treated poorly with respect to voting rights in the IMF in particular, which the U.S. did not rectify until it became too late. And so you saw a China that was beginning to take a leadership role. Xi Jinping changed the equation by becoming boastful about it. There had always been sort of the ethos in China, hide and bide. Hide your capabilities, bide your time, keep your head down, low profile, lest China be viewed as a threat. Xi Jinping decided the hide and bide era was over and became so boastful about China's accomplishments and China's plans, including in Made in China 2025, that alarm bells went off across the United States and many allies. Not so much that the facts changed, because I think China's intention was already clear, but in the aggressive and almost hostile way, China's aims were put, quite anti-Western in tone, the notion that China would not interfere in the internal affairs of other countries, and that as the West was in decline, it was now center stage for the developing world. And of course, that formulation favors China drastically because it is the heir to the developing world. So it has presented sort of a worldview that helps to further its own individual aims while being somewhat attractive to developing in other countries as the U.S. floundered around. And of course, our recovery took 10 years. So it was a long, long haul between 2007, 2008, 2009 and where we are today of course, much more robust. That's good for the United States for a host of reasons, obviously, and some concern to China. The U.S. has quite a bit of economic resilience now, perhaps some argue more than China does, making the tariff fight harder on China than the U.S., but it's hard on the U.S. nonetheless. So I do think the financial crisis was a pivot point for China, for the articulation of its ambitions, and the way in which it articulated those ambitions in a rather aggressive, almost hegemonic tone. So that certainly is one substantial element. And the other element, too, is Xi Jinping, and I think what he views as China's historic destiny. China was the center of the world, at the center of the world, for millennia. And it's only in the last five or six hundred years that China lost its lead. China became non-innovative. The Industrial Revolution came along. China missed it, remained poor, remained backward. And China is now in the process of catching up and doing it very, very rapidly. Xi Jinping has put an emphasis on the historic nature of these activities, the historic nature of China's reemergence, of China's rise, and puts it in very prescriptive terms, 
but nonetheless with sort of the notion of great potential ahead for China, something to reach for, something to shoot for. So the combination of the financial crisis coupled with a leader like Xi Jinping who puts economic activity in visionary and historic terms is a powerful combination for China. I think your emphasis on the financial crisis is very important. As it was unfolding, I was living in Beijing, head of the World Bank program, and one of the things I did was I was invited to the Hebei Party School to lecture to the 500 top Communist Party officials from Hebei province, which has about 100 million people, on the financial crisis and implications for China. And during the questions, one man stood up and said he was the governor of a county that had millions of people. And he said, we used to think the U.S. was the model for everything, and now we don't know what to think. Now, I was a little surprised. I wasn't aware the U.S. was the model for everything in China. But we were talking about economics. And he did mean it was the model for financial regulation, for market economy, joining the WTO, all of these things. And it really threw China a really big curveball that we had such devastating impact from that financial crisis. It certainly threw Americans for a curveball, I'll tell you that. Of course, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about prospects for a trade deal between the U.S. and China. Given everything you were just saying, it doesn't look like there's much negotiation going on right now, so we're not trying to look into a crystal ball about the next few months. But over the next year or so, are there prospects for a trade deal? Can China actually change these practices that you've identified that are damaging to us? Well, look, I think since the deal collapsed in May, there have been a series of escalations on both sides, on the U.S. side and on the China side. On the U.S. side, of course, putting Huawei on the entity list, making it illegal to sell to Huawei, making it illegal for foreign companies to sell to Huawei if what they're selling contains U.S. technology, poses an existential threat to China's flagship and only multinational company that's been successful. So this is a substantial escalation from China's point of view, threatening tariffs of as much as 25% on the remaining $300 billion of Chinese trade with the United States is another escalation. There have been a variety of other escalations, most recently now, the further tightening of student visas and tightening of visas for scholars, which is really rather unfortunate, but is yet a further escalation. On the China side, of course, put Huawei on the entities list. China is now going to create an entities list of its own, which will be far broader and far more opportunistically applied, I'm quite sure, than a U.S. list would be, but both are rather undesirable. China has put out a spate of programs on the technology side, which frankly have been years in the making, but they're rolling them all out now, furthering its cybersecurity, data security, national security, product standards aims, which is to say more Sinocentric, with China having even greater rights to source code, to encryption keys, things of that sort with respect to foreign technology, and further rights to gain data from network service providers. It has sanctioned Ford for certain so-called anti-competitive practices in China, and it issued a white paper, which I thought wasn't all that different from what they've been saying, 
China's sovereignty is paramount and things of that sort. But what I thought was interesting about their white paper was that they translated it into eight languages, which suggests both that they want to regain the narrative on who did what to whom with respect to the deal that cratered, but also that they want to make clear that they are only responding to U.S. provocation, that China didn't start this, China says, but rather are just responding to the U.S. Of course, the U.S. view would be that China absolutely started this by embarking on the practices that it did with respect to IP, tech transfer subsidies, and so on. Can they come together? Well, I think in the long term, trade war between the two countries doesn't favor either president. They both begin to look less competent than people might have thought they were. The hit on the economy grows over time. Business uncertainty increases. Investment stops. There's a slowdown. It's a little bit like a fiscal contraction in impact. And that's going to be the case for both economies, not only because it gets harder for U.S. exports to sell into China, but China's exports to the U.S. become more expensive and more difficult to afford and so on if they can get in at all and if adequate substitutes are not available. So it creates a very messy and undesirable situation, slowing both economies and therefore slowing global growth, which is what the IMF and World Bank, I think, are most concerned about at the present time. So will there be a deal? I think, yes, there will be a deal at some point. Will it solve all the problems? I don't think it's possible to solve all the problems, but I think it's possible to make progress in some of these areas so that, for example, if you take away all joint venture requirements in China and therefore the ability of the Chinese partner to siphon technology or intellectual property, you gain greater advantage in the China market and your intellectual property isn't fully protected but more protected than it might have been. So there are ways to make progress in these areas that I think are important. And I think further, the single most important thing that the United States can do if it wants to tame what it views as the China challenge is to get our own house in order. R&D spending as a percent of GDP has fallen persistently since actually the 1950s or 1960s. The United States infrastructure is falling apart. Our education system is lagging the world, not just having to do with China, but the world. And there are so many other areas where the United States has done almost nothing for the past decade plus, perhaps two decades. That has to change if the United States is going to address the China challenge. If we don't maintain our competitiveness, if we don't maintain the best educated and most skilled workforce, we will lose regardless what China does, regardless what China agrees to. We will simply not keep up with a China that is hungry, that has tremendous internal talent, that has 1.4 billion people, and that has the scale and the capacity to deliver. So the United States has to up its game, and I see no evidence at this point that we're doing so. I was in Shanghai and Beijing over the last couple of weeks, and a lot of the economists I talked to in China, they recognize that these Chinese practices are actually damaging to their productivity growth in their economy. So there is a constituency. About 70% of foreign investment into China now is not in joint ventures. It's in 100% foreign-owned. So they've demonstrated they can do that in many sectors, and asking them to do that in all sectors is really quite reasonable. I think that that's right. I think further, 
China is at risk, as you know, of seeing its supply chains disintermediated because of U.S. action, with companies deciding to move some or part or all of their supply chains out of China, or at least removing China as the hub, the main assembler, for example. That would have quite devastating consequences because certainly over 50% of China's exports to the United States are from foreign invested enterprises, which is to say largely their supply chains. And if that leaves, you have very substantial export risk from China. And while China's internal economy has grown in terms of consumption, certainly, China is still also export dependent. So it can ill afford to see these very lucrative supply chains move out of China and into potentially competitive countries in certain areas. So that's something else that China needs to think about. And U.S. companies always have as a lever to use to get better treatment in China. So last question, Charlene. There are people in Washington now arguing the U.S. should decouple from China, that we can't really get along these two very, very different systems. What do you think about this idea? I don't know what decoupling means, but I'm quite sure that the administration has no plan whatsoever for what it actually means in practice and what it would lead to. And whether if the U.S. wanted to decouple, it could, whether it would be sustainable if it did. I don't think there's any thought given to this at all. There's certainly no plan. There is no long-term strategic vision for the role of China and the United States in the world. I think harder liners would like to see the Chinese economy slowed substantially, become more fragile perhaps, perhaps in their wildest imagination collapse, something of that sort. That sounds rather apocalyptic, but I think there is at least some strain of a view in that direction versus others who see decoupling more as a catch-all phrase to really describe what the U.S. would like to do solely with respect to certain technologies, which is to say the United States has to pay more attention to our own internal security and our national security needs, and therefore there will be certain applications for which Chinese technology is completely unacceptable, and certain networks, for example, 5G, in which the U.S. would rather not have much in the way of Chinese, if any, technology. But there are many areas, handsets, for example, where we sell to China, China sells here, so on and so forth. One could imagine a system of mutual deterrence. You use your handset to spy on us, we'll use our handsets to spy on you, and so why don't we just cut it out and go in some different direction? So there are some who view what I think the administration is beginning to do on Huawei, for example, although they're using a Medex, which I think is unfortunate, but trying to do with respect to Huawei or other Chinese technology, just to cabinet it in a bit so that U.S. domestic and national security is better protected. But as for a full decoupling, I'm not sure what it means, what it portends, what it would lead to, and whether the U.S. would ever win. And my own view is if you want to start a war, you better make sure you're going to win it. We've been talking to Charlene Barshevsky, former United States trade representative, given us a lot of insight about the past, China's joining the WTO and its trade practices, and also about the future, how the United States can work better with China for mutual benefit. So thank you very much, Charlie. My pleasure. Thank you so much.
The Brookings Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reberedo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does many of our book interviews, and Lizette Baylor and Eric Abalahin provide design and web support. Finally, my thanks to Camilo Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.